Hey there, Inspiration Junkies. It's me again, your host, Tanji Renee, and I just need to let you know that we only have two episodes left in this season. That's right, just two. It's been great. I've loved bringing you these guests and telling these stories of these incredible women that are probably never going to get the shine that they deserve, and I'm happy to do it, but... I need to hear from you if you want us to come back for a season three in 2019. Now, there's some simple ways to do that. You can send us an email at that's what she did podcast at gmail.com or hit me up on Instagram, that's what she did podcast, and let us know if you want us back in 2019 to tell more great stories and bring you more great guests. Smooches. everyone welcome back to another episode of that's what she did the podcast today i have a very very special guest for you guys co-hosting with me and that is Susie q smith who is an artist she's an activist and she's an educator that lives with her brilliant daughter here in the city of denver colorado and she shared her poetry on stage throughout the u.s sharing stages with nikki giovanni twilib kuali one of my personal favorites uh, the late Gil Scott Heron and many other others over the years. Her work has appeared in Union Station Magazine, Suspect Press, Muzzle Magazine, Malpay's Review, Paltrow Review Press, and many, many more with her collection of poets, poems, 13 Descansansos, is available on Penmanship Books. She's also one of the founders, correct me if this is wrong, Susie, of Slam Nuba. Is that uh, correct? I'm the first slam master of Slam Nuba. The we first slam master. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Which is an award-winning performance poetry event that is it still here in Col- in it Denver? Is. Okay. It is indeed. Going on twelve years now. Wow. So it'll be twelve years in November. That's impressive. That's yeah. cool. I don't run it anymore, but Okay. But it's still around. I mean, that's how I first came to be familiar with you. Um, and as soon as I started doing this podcast, I was like, I have to get her on. <laughs> All right. well, thank you. Thank um, you. And so listeners, if you haven't figured it out yet, Susie Q. Smith is 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 a very well-known poet. And I love poets. And she, you're actually the first poet we've had. Ooh, that's exciting. <laughs> we have a couple other lined up, but you're the first one that we've had. And I'm, I'm so I'm excited to have you on because I have been following your work for a long time. Um, and I think that there's... There's an interesting, I think, mix of poets that I love, but I think everybody thinks of poets and poetry as kind of one thing. Maybe not everybody, but I I would say in in the mainstream, people think of poetry as one thing, and it's not. It's very multi-dimensional form of art, Mm -hmm. I think, a spoken word art, and I love words, and I have respect for poets on a different level of other artists because of the command of the language that... I think poetry requires as opposed to other forms. It does. Yeah. Um, I think that, I mean, I teach students all the time that actually the people with the strongest vocabularies are actually MCs. Mm. Um, and it's because they write in rhyme form. Mm-hmm. So you have to learn a lot of words if right. you want to sound, if you, if you want to say something new and original, um, you've got to know a lot, a lot of words and you've got to fit it in those, in those bar spaces. Right. So hip hop is, um, it's a, it's a pretty grueling taskmaster actually when it comes to words. Um, poetry is a lot more free, right. um, which is one of the reasons I love it. Um, because I can say I have the, the entire 
world of time and the entire world of meter and rhythm to do all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a little more like jazz, and you have a, a lot more opportunity to go where you want to go with the words. Mm-hmm. And it can it can be really really anything. So. I, I try to expose as many people to poetry as possible. There are so many different kinds. You know, my dream is that everyone in the world has at least like five favorite living poets and five favorite poets that are passed on. And like, it, you mm-hmm. know, I want everyone to be like, oh, well, this poet right now is the most amazing. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think. And, and there really is, I think poetry is getting more accessible, more representational um, overall mm-hmm. as an art form um, through, and a lot of that has to do with performance poetry and spoken word and slam and all of those movements that have really been poetry for the people by the people Mm -hmm. etc and taking it out of uh, the world of academia a little bit um, and bringing it into language that people use Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's been useful and so I think but I think also that providing it a number of formats right because I still read poetry I read poetry in books all the time but I think that performing poetry and giving it to people on stages also is another way for people to make it uh, more accessible mm-hmm. and engaging. Um, people don't know that it's something that can be performed. And so right. they explain that to people. Um, I think that it's not, people are not as confused as they used to be by, by, the, by the idea of what I do, right? I mean, there was the, there was the Def Jam movement that gave people an idea, right? right. Now there's like sort of the, the button poetry, slam uh-huh. find, uh, right about now. And it's many, many really well-known YouTube channels that, mm-hmm. that show people like, oh, these are poets performing poetry. Right. Oh, that's what it's like. Oh, bet. I like that. Okay. I love right about now. That's like one of the things I consume the most on the internet. Right. <laughs> it's right about now. Um, so for those of you that don't know what right about now is, it's it is a YouTube channel, right? I think I watch it mostly on Facebook because they, they post all their stuff there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a just a channel of poets performing. It is. <laughs> it's also an event. So they have yeah. a weekly event in Texas. Mm-hmm. So they're based in, well, College Station in Houston. Um, and so they have a weekly event. And then it kind of led into the YouTube channel and et cetera. And uh, yeah, they're, they're pretty wonderful. Why do you think poetry is so important to be taught now? Because it's it's very different. I think, to your point, the accessibility is there. I started to become engaged in poetry just because I had a really great English teacher, right, that, that talked about poetry in a way that was – he was the first one that was like, listen, hip-hop artists, are they're poets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a different kind of poetry, mm-hmm. but they're poets. And so we had in school this mix of – who would be taught as the classics, but also in our actual assignments, he was like, you get to pick whoever you want. And we did that. So it kind of opened up this world and poetry ended up being very anchoring for me. Um, but why do you think now, because I don't know that it's still taught in a lot of schools, poetry um, as a medium. Um, I have been teaching it for in schools for, well, I've taken a break from teaching so I'm on sabbatical this year, which is delightful. Um, but I've been teaching poetry in high schools for about eight years. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I teach my students, right, so the aim is, nec- is not necessarily for all of them to become professional poets when they grow up, right? Uh, but I believe that stories matter. I believe that words mm-hmm. matter. I believe that narratives matter. For me, poetry is very, very, um, it's a very free and accessible form of writing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to make sense. It can be very, very low pressure. Um, and also you reveal as much as you want to reveal without having to give someone an entire narrative, which if you're not prepared to do that, it's something that can be very approachable, right? Speaking Mm -hmm. in metaphor, speaking in code. For me as a kid, for sure, like I grew up in a really crowded house 
and there was no such thing as privacy so if i had kept a diary like my siblings would have been all up and through yeah, it so i know all about that yeah. <laughs> so i learned to write in code i learned to write in metaphor so that if anybody was in it they didn't necessarily know what i was talking about it was like my own little secret language mm -hmm. uh, so i've been writing poetry for my entire life but i also teach my students that if you don't tell your story like there are people that are going to do it for you and the only one that's really going to be able to give an honest perspective on who you are what you think what you feel uh, is you and mm -hmm. it's your responsibility to do so and when you don't do it someone else in the world many other someone else's in the world will do it and they're very very good at it and there, you know there's whole industries that are built and they thrive on convincing people who they are supposed to be what they're supposed to think what they're supposed to look like what they're supposed to want what they're supposed to dream etc 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 right and if we don't interrupt that narrative if we don't connect with that inner voice where I think most poetry is born from mm -hmm. um, then it's very very difficult to survive and as yourself right and so poetry can at least help to connect with your inner voice and help you to remember who you actually are and what you mm -hmm. actually believe and what your experiences are and i think that the more people access it and the more people share those stories the more we get to a complete picture um, because we've lived with so many singular narratives of each other for such a long time and the dominant culture has uh owned poetry in so mm -hmm. many ways right and it's been very very as far as what gets taught to us, right? Most of us growing up, um, we all hear Shakespeare, which is, you know, which I think Shakespeare is important. Mm -hmm. uh, Shakespeare's one writer, um, and there are many, many more. You know, people don't even sometimes realize how many living poets there are who are yeah. still publishing right now. I can't even keep up with them, and this is what I do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's so many amazing, amazing books of poems coming out all the time. And so um, I would love for more people to know that. Right. And to see them, right? And so, and also to listen to them, right? I mean, there, there are great videos coming out every single day of yeah. poems that are going to blow your mind. So I want everyone to be into it as an art form. <laughs> well, it's why I love hip hop. I mean, yeah. and I have kind of a love-hate relationship with hip hop. Oh, because, don't we all? Because, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, you have really great artists out there that, that, that it, it's the words that are the art and... So they're putting down lyrics over this track that's just makes you kind of want to dance or bop your head or whatever. But it's really about those lyrics and about mm -hmm. what they have to say. I think of like Kendrick Lamar, Childish Gambino. I think these are two great poets of our time, in my opinion. But my love-hate relationship with hip-hop is about all of the rest of the stuff. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, think, I think some of the tracks that I find most danceable are the most offensive yes. lyrically, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> which is always very, which is very, you know, complicated. Mm -hmm. I think being a woman who loves hip hop, I think has always been a little complicated. Yeah. Um, and so there's certain songs that I'm just going to dance to when I'm by myself at home. Right. Um, those are things that, or, you know, like you really start vibing to a song and then all of a sudden it really like starts calling you all kind of names. You're like, wait a minute. I just... I was just dancing. I can't. Mm -hmm. Why you got to insult me like that? So there's a lot of times that happens where it's just. Um, and then there's something about um, a lot of the energy in it, even when it's wildly offensive, that is still attractive. Um, and that's and that's a whole nother level of complication. Yeah. And like, you know, how much we love seeing our men win, um, even when it wounds us. Mm -hmm. right? And um that's that's a that's a complicated you know and there's whole site classes based on that exact yeah. thing mm -hmm. <laughs> it's very complicated mm -hmm. you're correct it mm -hmm. is and it's it's a little tough i think particularly in this moment of time right. to be a woman who is 
a feminist like who cares deeply about moving women's issues forward um to be a woman of color Mm -hmm. but to also love Mm -hmm. (laughs) hip-hop and i also have a teenage daughter who also is black and also loves the worst hip-hop possible Mm -hmm. and (laughs) mostly to annoy and frustrate me i'm sure (laughs) um but those are some of those things where it's these these complicated cycles and i think it's actually harder for her generation than it is for and it was for mine because at least growing up we had a counterpoint mm-hmm. uh, we had many counterpoints um, and there were a lot more women represented in hip-hop then yeah uh, like in regular mainstream radio like it wasn't uncommon to hear on the radio just mm-hmm. turn it on and hear mc light and see queen queen latifah on tv and see hear yo-yo or somebody yeah. you know like there were a number of women that we heard from and now like it's really like it's like the the, the highlander with women in Mm hip-hop right like there can be only one right and so they you know end up kind of like making these inventing all of these beefs so that there can only be one woman in hip-hop represented at a time Mm -hmm. and so it's either got to be nikki or it's got to be cardi or it's got to be azalea or it's got to be right but it like can't as if they can't all exist right (laughs) as if like women don't make up like actually more than half of the world population right right? so it's really wild to me that there's this theory that like women aren't supposed to rap um, or women aren't supposed to be on microphones and those are things that are really really interesting and that's sort of those sort of theories is what drew me to to be a part of Lady Wu-Tang when that was Mm -hmm. a thing that happened here in Denver so Rue Johnson that was all her brainchild um and when she asked me to be a part of the group, I was like, I'm not even a rapper, though. Like, I'm a poet. <laughs> like, I mean, granted, you know, there are some bars here and there. Um, but I definitely identify as a poet first. And so uh, and then she asked me to be method man in the group. And I was like, wait, <laughs> I'm not I don't. Um, but there was that part of me that mostly it was like a project that I just wanted it to be um, super clear that like no women actually are capable of doing anything. Right. Um, and the more that we get pushed back on it, the more. Um, engaged I became right (laughs) like these people would be super mad that like how dare we touch like the most masculine group of all time (laughs) well and I thought that was like I saw you guys one time at like one thing I I don't remember where it was I know I was in college and I was going to like a lot of slam poetry stuff Mm -hmm. at that time just because I'm a consumer of this art form Um, and I remember seeing it and being like that was really bold it was (laughs) it was really bold not just because to your point Wu-Tang is one of the most masculine and oftentimes misogynistic groups Um, but they're also they have this place as like in the royalty Mm -hmm. of hip-hop history well and every single one of us loves Wu-Tang right deeply deeply (laughs) deeply loves (laughs) Wu-Tang Right. And there was this really, really scary, scary. It was terrifying. Mm-hmm. Right. But also something was really, really necessary. And initially I felt the project was going to at least my involvement with the project would be just like one show to mm-hmm. just sort of demonstrate like, hi, we can do whatever we want. Uh, we are people and we just can do things. And um, let's stop pretending that women can't hold microphones and speak into them uh, rhythmically mm-hmm. the same way that men can. I don't know why anyone would think that your gender would make you better or worse at such a thing. Um but then it was the first show was uh, so well attended and so well received that it became a thing like oh this we have to do this now mm-hmm. like this is a this is a thing okay this is not a one night show this is going to be a project for a while and then it was for a good couple of years um, and it got more and more involved over time until you know then we were per- we performed with Raekwon a couple of times mm-hmm. with Ghostface Killer and that was like all a lot of things happened um, and it was getting really really big. 
Um, at which point, that's when I finally had to step back. And, um, you know, who knows, perhaps there will one day be another Lady Wu-Tang Clan. Um, but for me, it became a little overwhelming to do that alongside everything else that I mm-hmm. was doing at the time. And at the time, I think I was still uh, running Slam Nuba. Um, but the founding of slam nuba is actually um it was born out of cafe nuba it's Mm -hmm. hot and it's black right so um ashara findayo who we were very fortunate to have in denver for a long time who really built so much of our poetry scene and the reason that there are so many incredible poets and such a beautiful community in denver um of poets uh, ashara really has everything to do with that um and when she founded cafe nuba um, that was a monthly open mic that happened in right. Denver. And Cafe Nuba used to be on some TV station because I remember watching mm-hmm. it. What was that on? Do you remember? It was on, uh, it might have even been before Denver Open Media, but it was on like the public access channel. Yeah, so, yeah, okay. Um, and I think there might still be some episodes floating out there. Um, but it was it was not far from, so the first Cafe Nuba was at Gemini Tea Emporium. In, I'm gonna guess 1999, 2000, somewhere around there. It was, uh, Gemini some years I ago. don't even remember that place. It existed for a period of time okay. um, <laughs> on the corner of 29th and Welton. Okay, very close to where we are right now. Mm-hmm. And um, and then it just kept growing, right? So mm-hmm. it was a small tea shop, and then it just kept growing until it became like a huge event. Until it was like at the Roxy, right? It moved around quite a bit. It was always the last Friday of the month, but it was a highly curated poetry open mic and show mm-hmm. um, that also involved a lot of community engagement so you would go and you might hear from local politicians you might hear from a local nonprofit. you might hear from there would have booths there, there might be hiv testing there mm-hmm. might be someone talking about like a clean water campaign or um a lot like I remember Amy Goodman from Democracy Now came and spoke at Cafe Nuba. I think I was at that one. <laughs> there so many things that happened. <laughs> but also Ashara was able to bring in some of the most well known poets from around the country mm-hmm. and everyone wanted to come to do this thing. Um and bring it became this sort of poetry mecca. All of these other open mics became like these sort of spin offs of Cafe Nuba until there was a really hot mic in Denver for poetry every mm-hmm. single night of the week. And poets would come from around the country and they would do all these different features and stay in Denver for the week. And it started really, really building something. And then uh, Denver used to have just one poetry slam at the Mercury Cafe. And that team won the National Poetry Slam in 2006. And then they came home and they said, hey, so we've been talking. So it was Ashara Ekundayo, Panama Soweto, and Ken Arkind. And the two of the, so Panama and Ken had been on the winning team. And Ashara was running Cafe Nuba, and the three of them got together and said, "We should start a new slam." And then uh, they came to me like, "Hey, so you wanna you wanna do this thing with us? You wanna be the slam master?" And I was like, "Sure, <laughs> what's a slam master?" <laughs> and then I had to learn all about the world of poetry slam, mm-hmm. and, uh, and now I've done everything in the world that you can do in poetry slam, pretty much. Um, so I ran Slam Nuba for several years. Um, I hosted the Women of the World Poetry Slam in Denver in 2012, hosted the National Poetry Slam here last year, uh, served on the board. I also served as the organization's executive director for four years, a little over, mm-hmm. until a couple weeks ago. So now I'm not, and now I'm not involved in Poetry Slam at all, which is really a delightful gift. For it me. is? Okay. <laughs> I was going to ask you how that feels. Oh, it's <laughs> wonderful. I'm, I'm I'm definitely still a poet. I love poetry. I love poets. I love poems. Um, 
but I definitely am prepared for uh, a break from slam. Mm-hmm. And so slam specifically is uh, is the competitive art right. of performance poetry, and that's the part that I'm uh, moving away from. I've graduated, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are a lot of beautiful things about slam. Um, so it's like sort of the performance poetry Olympics, if you will. Um, granted, the people are chosen from the audience, you know, so it's not necessarily... It doesn't mean that anyone's poem is better than anyone else's poem, right? The judges are chosen randomly and it's supposed to be a joke just as some means to get the audience engaged in the show and let them participate in the show. And Mm -hmm. I think that part of it's hip. Um, But the competition does get kind of serious for some folks. And it doesn't necessarily always bring out the best in every single person, uh, though it does do a lot of really beautiful things. So, I mean, some of some of my very favorite people in life, like some of my super closest ride or dies I met through Poetry Slam, mm-hmm. like some of my very favorite people. Um, I know people who like have whole families based on Poetry Slam, right? Like they met their partners at mm-hmm. a slam and now they got like whole Poetry Slam babies and like there are <laughs> kids in school, babies. right? You know what I mean? Like it's <laughs> a bunch of them, right? Like my whole timeline is like all of these like adorable little children with giant backpacks on that are like Poetry Slam babies. Um, and it's great. And I think also uh, it is a collection of such a such a really, really diverse group of people. There are so many different kinds of people engaged in Poetry Slam like around the world. And I love that it creates a space and a platform for people mm-hmm. to be heard that might not otherwise be heard, right? And so because of that um, and because of the accessibility of the art form, it really um, lends itself to a lot of marginalized voices, right? And mm-hmm. so that's really great because I think it's important to hear from everyone and there are people that we don't necessarily hear from anywhere else and so one of the beautiful things about the big poetry slam movements and the big tournaments is that you get to meet other people from around the world or around the country that love this thing that you love that do this thing that you do and might even share this part of your identity that no one in your hometown shares with you right Mm -hmm. so those are some really beautiful community building aspects of it that that is why I stayed for as long as I stayed in the world of poetry slam um However, like the competitive thing for me, that part has been not that interesting. And just the overall format just gets a little bit, um, I'm, I'm interested in doing some other things, you mm-hmm. know, some longer forms, some shorter forms. Uh, and the form itself is is very, very constricting after a while. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, it's been, you know, 12 years in the game. Yeah. So. It's a long time. <laughs> it's a long so time. I, I, I wish them well and I'm, I'm ready for some other things. So I've also, you know, gotten involved in theater and music mm-hmm. and a lot of other things that I like to do. Um, but building community is always a, is a cornerstone of mm-hmm. everything that I do. And so... Uh, that was that's what kept me as a part of like the poetry slam national community for such a long time mm-hmm. I'm very interested in the intersection of spoken word and activism so I know that you're an activist and you are involved in a lot of different things and I think it's really interesting um, to see those two worlds come together because uh, I think when you look at any movements any community building effort um, some of the first people at the line, at the fence, you know, going out in the beginning often are the artists mm-hmm. and the poets, and they're documenting it in this very, I think, authentic and real time way that is different than your archivists, your journalists, your, your whoever that's also there kind of observing. Um, I see a lot of like poet activists who get the who who'd very deeply understand that um, any 
cause you're going to be involved in requires action. So that they're kind of documenting in this really interesting way, but also taking action at the same time, which is unique. Not everybody's doing that. Right. Um, so what are your thoughts on that just generally? I don't think I have a specific question. Yeah. <laughs> No, well, so I'll reference Ashara again, because uh, mm-hmm. I think she's the first person who ever taught me the word artivist and artivism, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so I think there are a lot of different ways to look at that. And um, I don't know that any of them are wrong. Um, I know what my level of engagement is and where I feel like I need to be. And that shifts over time with what my availability is, right? Sometimes I think, you know, is the question I think I have with people often is, is, is art enough, right? Is it enough to write the poem? Is it enough to do that? Or do you need to put your body in something, right? Uh, but there are so many different ways to engage, right? Mm-hmm. I think that um, if if what you're trying to interrupt is apathy, right? Or if what you're trying to do is like allow, is, is create some awareness around something, right? Sometimes the art can be enough um, just by, you know, getting on stage and saying this thing and sharing this thing and making sure your audience now knows like, oh, this is a thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to engage your mind around that. Um, but I also want to engage your heart around that, right? Which is, I think, one of the major differences and why it's so important for art and activism to live together and and work together in a mm-hmm. lot of ways, right? I think that artists should be present in all kinds of conversations, right? Because there are a lot of things. We can present data all day. And I'm a nerd, so I enjoy data. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like facts. <laughs> but I also, also enjoy feelings, right? Um, and I think it's really important to get the heart involved in the process as well. And that's something that artists can do. Mm-hmm. Um, there are also people who will co-op movements and struggles as artists, even though they're not really, they don't really have any skin in the game. Um, and so there's that, there's an appropriative um, element to that as well, which is so interesting to me. Um, I don't know that I necessarily like on a personal tip rock with those people. Mm-hmm. I also don't despise them. Um, I think there are certain people who have access to communities that I don't have access to. And if they talk about things that um, they don't necessarily uh, have any real personal investment or have any actual or, or not really genuinely affected by mm-hmm. um, at least they're bringing some awareness into a space right and they are often well intentioned um, I mean intent versus impact that's another conversation um, but I think that that's something especially when it comes to like uh, you know again the, the competitive world of poetry slam right and so there are times where um, you might it's it's not uncommon uh, to see a person of color share their story and then have someone else come and uh, share a, a story about people of color uh, that are maybe their students, right? And mm-hmm. then be scored higher, right? Mm. Even though it's not their lived experience. Yeah. Um, because it's more comfortable for the audience. So those are things, right? Those, we have that that nuance all the time and those conversations. Um, but there are a lot of different ways for people to, to move and to, to motivate other people. Um, and sometimes I have to ask, like, is, is that activism? Is art all by itself activism if it's addressing, like, um, a social, if it's addressing social justice, mm-hmm. if it's addressing a social issue? And sometimes I think the answer is, uh, well, n- for me, no. The answer is always no. Okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's just a fact of, of who I am and how I live my life. Because um, I know that that doesn't do enough, right? Because I'm living my life and I'm usually um, very invested in and affected by in a deeply direct and personal way like mm-hmm. I have so much skin in a whole bunch of games <laughs> right so, um so for me it's there's nothing is enough right there's no such thing as enough like if I've got breath in my body and I can still do something then I'm gonna do something mm-hmm. um because I need to survive I need my family to survive right I need the people I love like this is involves 
um, my very real life. Mm -hmm. And so it's not theoretical. Um, so no, it's not enough, right? Like I do everything that I can. And I think that's a responsibility that I have. Um, but for other people, right? Um, I don't know that it's, and there are also different ways to engage, right? Some people are going to be at rallies and marches. Some people are going to be uh, running for office, right? And getting mm -hmm. involved that way. Some people are going to be running nonprofits and, and giving service to community in those direct ways. Uh, and some people are going to be on stages and talking about it, right? Um, and some people like, you know, like James Baldwin was one of my favorite authors. And he you mm. know, writes about that, like his, his role of yeah. like being a witness, you know, and there's parts of, in his, some essays where he's talking about mm -hmm. how frustrating that is, right? Being with people who are out here in the streets really doing things. And he is, his job in, the, in those situations is really to observe, to process, to witness, to record it, and to share it with everyone else, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's such an, and we know, right, now reading James Baldwin's work, like how important his work right. was and is. Um, but at the time, he would feel so, sort of useless sometimes. And like, is, am I doing enough? Like, is this, is it enough to be a witness um, and to share this? And I think we all go through those those frustrations around like, you know, where where is that line? Um, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, again, like particularly in this point in, t in time, mm -hmm. I feel like the the debates in in the world right now is is are these facts facts? What is the fact? What is the truth? Mm -hmm. um, and I, f I feel like the those people who who are the artists are being pushed out of the conversation in a lot. And I think that is significant and it's important to take note of that because like to your point, looking back, how significant the work of, of like a James Baldwin is mm -hmm. and where would we be if he didn't do what he did and, and we still didn't have that to look back on. Right. Um, and just the, I don't even know what the word, like the ugliness is so big to me mm -hmm. right now that I don't know where we make room for these people who are doing this important thing in their corner of the world, documenting and, and speaking about it and saying, this is what we see happening real time on the ground. And it, it almost feels like they're just like hollering into a wind tunnel <laughs> at mm -hmm. this point, because anytime there's, there's just, there are no counterpoints anymore. Like it's, I think, I feel like it's very hard to find your way through the muck mm -hmm. at this point in time. I mean, do you see that or experience that being a problem? I think that um, many of us, myself for sure, for sure, uh, we live in bubbles, mm -hmm. right? And so there are no counterpoints because we're just talking to each other and ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Anything else, right? And social media has allowed that to happen, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of things and we just, you know, um, when someone has a repulsive viewpoint, we just generally unfriend um, and, and we remove that person. Mm -hmm. um, and, we, and we have that option now, right? And you also end up talking politics with people you never would have talked politics with before. And you end up sharing perspectives with people and being in touch with people that you wouldn't be in touch with otherwise, mm -hmm. right? Like, so that's the connections are very strange. Um, and in some ways more authentic and in some ways entirely superficial, right? But like, um, you know, you're not necessarily, it's, it's not normal um course of business to be still in touch with and, and hear about the days of and the thoughts of and the political leanings of you know 
that girl you worked with 12 years ago at mm-hmm. the call center or whatever. You know what right. I mean? Like, that's just not something that would be normal. But now it's a normal thing. Like, right. oh, yeah, so-and-so from such-and-such. Yeah, we used to work together. I haven't seen you in person in a decade, but, like, it looks like you voted this way. Hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And then you start banging about it. Um, or you don't. But I think that's that's part of it, right? So there's a there's a strong level of exposure. Um, or like family members, right? Like, you know, at the big family reunions, we don't necessarily talk about politics. Uh, but now on Facebook, we do, you know, and mm-hmm. there's certain cousins I don't speak to now, right? And that's challenging um, in some new ways. Well, they don't speak to me. I'm still here for a conversation. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, but those are things that I think that um, that's a part of the challenge is being willing to have conversations with people who are super um far away from because even even people that have 90 percent of the same viewpoints right like that's that's most of who i see and talk to on a regular basis and we still have different things to bang about you Mm -hmm. know um and all of that's possible but um i don't know i think that's 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 the challenge in in our political climate right now is um is there still value in speaking to people that have wildly different perspectives than yours? What's to be gained from it? What's our collective goal? Do we have any collective goals, right? Or like, is it best to talk, um, you know, about the American divorce? And what mm-hmm. does that look like? That's um, what it feels like. I mean, I feel like that's, to me anyway, that feels like the perfect, I guess, metaphor for it's almost like you're watching yeah. your parents go through an ugly divorce. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess I don't know what to do with that. I mean, I think, you know, and I've spent some time thinking about this over the years. And I think after every election season, more and more I'm committed to the divorce. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I don't think that's actually like a viable thing, right? right. Uh, the last time this country tried to get a divorce, there was a whole war. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm pretty sure any time a country tries to divide itself right, like right. in a real way, and it uh, it ends in war. So um, I don't want that. Right. Um, but clearly we are deeply, deeply divided as a nation and always have been. Right. People mm-hmm. talk about it like it's new and it's definitely not new. Uh, it's it's more visible now to a lot of people than it has been. Um, and I don't know that it is solvable. I don't know how to solve that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we continue to be human together. And there are a lot of people who I can love deeply uh, who I don't necessarily want voting in my country. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, once you, yeah. once you vote for the, the guy that's running the country now, like, nah, sweetie, you can't vote over here. You vote over there. You lost your privileges. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, if you vote for your country, that's your president. I'm going to vote for mine. Like, we just, why don't you just take the left and we'll take the right? Or, like, you take the top, we take the bottom. Whatever it is, I don't know how. We just, I'll see you on the weekends. You know what I mean? We can... Um, because sometimes I think the conversation is like, I don't know if I, how to bring people back from that point. Right. Um, and I've tried to do so lovingly uh, with a couple of people. I was like, okay, this is, um, so these viewpoints that you have, like they wound me in these ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, you know, and, and they are not prepared to have those conversations. And I don't, we might be too far gone. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure. If, if people are going to make the choices uh, to to unify in some ways. And I'm not sure that um, unity needs to be the goal. Uh, personally, mm-hmm. I think that I, I want everyone to have their best life. Um, I don't know that we have to do that as one nation. I'm not sure that's necessarily valuable. Um, 
and that ideology might might not be great for us actually so i'm i'm personally most invested in a divorce mm-hmm. at this point i don't think it's possible however so then we just figure out what to do next right, right. what do we do next do we uh there are so many people um you know i mean i think there are people that talk about um the exodus right and i don't know that there's really another place to go um i don't have any particular homeland to return to like i'm i'm from this place mm-hmm. um and there isn't a place that is it, where, where I immediately blend into. Um, but most of all, I think when it comes to departure, there's so much privilege in that conversation. Um, yeah, that's a good point. You know, and I, I do have a certain amount of privilege at this point that if I wanted to, you know, repatriate somewhere else, I could do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are so many people here that can't. And I don't feel like it's reasonable for me to abandon them. Mm-hmm. So... So for that, you know, we stay and we try to make this place as, as good as we can for for who's here, right? And for all the people that um, are disenfranchised and particularly for the people who are locked up. Um, there are a lot of people who can't participate fully in society and who are easily um, forgotten, abused, uh, dispossessed, etc. a lot of things. And so there are a lot of things that I'm passionate about. And mm-hmm. um, I don't feel like abandoning them is is the solution so i, I hear know. you i just don't know what the right solution is i don't think anybody does maybe we start the the, the yeah. campaign for the divorce <laughs> i mean there may not need to be a campaign because <laughs> there was some fighting on the hill today if i was following twitter yeah <laughs> like, yeah <laughs> yeah it's i mean but it's every day yeah you know it's every day um and it's almost yeah it's it's an interesting it's an interesting time to watch politics and watch things move and in some ways like so i spoke at the women's march right after this last election and i had a lot of mixed feelings about whether or not i was going to go and um largely because i didn't know the organizers um, and I didn't recognize any of the, you know, there were so many, there were some, finally, when I saw the speaker list come together, there were some people who I knew, but there were, there were just a whole lot of people. There's so many women that have been doing this work for a really long time. Yeah. And so I was puzzled as to what was going on and how people were suddenly engaged. And, um, but I decided to go ahead and speak and it was really fascinating because I have spoken at many rallies and marches and such and such over the years, including like women's marches specifically at that very same location right mm-hmm. at Civic Center Park in Denver and um, at the Martin Luther King Day Marade and like all kinds of things over the years and so watching that crowd roll in that day was exciting because mm-hmm. uh, I think the largest crowd I've ever seen there was about 30,000 mm-hmm. and so I'm there in the Greek Amphitheater backstage and they keep coming to give me updates on the numbers where they tell me, okay, we're at 50,000. And I was like, huh. Then they say, okay, we're at 100,000. I went, huh. Wow. Mm-hmm. And they said, we're at 200,000. I was like, wow, okay, okay, wow. Like a bunch of us have been trying to get work done yeah. um, for a very long time. And we've been screaming in the streets in all kinds of different capacities. Um, and this is what it took. Yeah. It took it took Donald J. Trump <laughs> for y'all to show up, and that's something. And I'm glad you're here. Um, and I'm sad that it, this is what it took. I'm sad that it had to get this bad to really engage mm-hmm. people. But I'm also so happy people are engaged, right? 
And I'm, I'm really happy to see some of the candidates um, that are being elected right now who like actually represent some of my values. Uh, so that's really exciting. It's like, okay, if it, if it took this level of tragedy for people to really be like, okay, let's go. Let's do some work. And let's... What do you think that's about, though? I, like, this is a question that you know, it's I keep reactionary. asking. It's reactionary. And it's also just, um, I think in general, I mean, people are, people are distracted. People are disenfranchised. People are also, though, just disengaged for a lot of reasons and disillusioned. There's so many reasons for that. Um, and for the most part, people don't necessarily see how it affects them. Mm-hmm. So they don't feel like they have any power. And in many ways, they don't, right? <laughs> in many ways, it doesn't. It does affect them. They just don't know how to fix it, right? So they just sort of wash their hands of it, t- tune it out, right? It's easy to just, like, chill out, watch Netflix and, like, whatever, whatever on the politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and, to, and so, like, being involved in a local level, I'm seeing a lot of local races get really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm seeing a lot of incumbents who were sort of moderate Dems starting to lose their seats, and that's yeah. interesting. Um and seeing like if if there are really like people that are going to be engaged truly right but but i think that right now there are a lot more people who are um, because they finally saw something that was just like so horrific and they saw so many things in this administration going like oh wow no this really affects my life or the life of someone i love really profoundly and really deeply Mm -hmm. um and so the and more of us are experiencing that i think and so that is something that um, people are starting to get. But at the same time, like, it swings. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, George W. Bush was president for a while. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it swings. Yeah. Um, so, you know. In a very, I feel like it swings in a almost bipolar way. Yeah, but not really. Like, mm-hmm. it swings, like, hard, weird, right, and then to the middle, you know, like, um, which is, you know, like, as much as people say about Barack Obama, like, he was moderate, you know. He, yeah. he said he was moderate, and he was when you look at his policies. Like, yeah. he didn't come in here all free boomia. Like, no, you know definitely I mean? not. <laughs> you know, like, he was a very, very moderate Democrat. Um, and even still, they try to make it sound like he was just like, you know, the most radical leftist. Like, cetera, not even close. And like, no, I wish. <laughs> I wish he had been. Like, you know, when people are, you know, when and you have these debates with people and they say, you know, well, like, I, you know, you got your candidate, now we got ours. And I'm just like, no, I've never, I've never had a candidate. <laughs> I've not had one yet. Wait, what? Where was my candidate at? I didn't. I didn't see Yeah, I'm with you. I've never had a candidate. Yeah, like, you know, so we'll see. Um, I'm I'm interested at this point. I'm interested. um, But I'm more interested, I think, in local life and local politics and and my local community and people, because I think that's where things really, really change Mm -hmm. um, in the most immediate and meaningful ways. Um, And I think a lot of that is DIY and uh, understanding who your people are, who's around you what you need, what you have, how to take care of each other, right? And, mm-hmm. and taking care of each other in profound ways and really building the things that we need because I don't know that really very many other systems ever will or have, right? And so much of the art and the activism that I have lived my life in is born out of that need, right? Mm-hmm. All of my art kind of comes from that place of either, it's either an excess or a void, right? Uh, so either I feel something way too big to hold it in my body anymore yeah, and it's got to go somewhere or or there's a strong need where I'm, you know, sort of that mm-hmm. feeling of like, why is no one saying this? I wish someone would say this. And then you realize like, oh, no, it's because it's me. I'd have to say it. OK, bet. Yeah. Um, and so there's this void. And I think it's the same thing when it comes to community service, when it comes to activism, where you realize that this there is this need that is not being met. And so you find ways. Um, and, you know, we all we got. What is the impact you hope to have in the world? 
oh, I hope to be remembered as someone who is kind. I hope uh, that more people will feel engaged in the process of taking care of each other because mm-hmm. I do think that makes life better for everyone. Um, I hope that I inspire people to lead with love and service um, and compassion. And I hope that that's something that is a lasting legacy. Um, so far, so good. <laughs> well, that's refreshing, I have to say. <laughs> That it's that I think that the the journey hasn't it doesn't at least appear to have destroyed you because <laughs> I see that mm-hmm. I've seen that you know I mean I think it can and I've seen right. it too mm-hmm. um, and that's a big part of like you know when I when I realized that my time was up in the poetry slam mm-hmm. you know running that running that organization uh, and I found myself getting sicker and sicker and more and more stressed and caring more and more. And I finally just had to pause and go like, oh, no, sis, you've seen where this goes. Yeah. You've seen this play out a bunch of times. Like, how about uh, set some boundaries? Also, I think um, any organization that requires a single person to do everything, if it doesn't stand without that person, that organization shouldn't stand. Yeah, it's not healthy. And so I've learned that over mm-hmm. years, right, um, in my involvement, like for, you know, Slam Nuba, for instance, right, I've... I've come in and gone away from it so many times and it endures just fine without me. New right. leadership comes in, right? And sometimes when you um, stay in leadership positions too long, you are you don't allow anyone else to grow into it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, And so sometimes it's uh, saying no to people and stepping away from things is actually a gift because it allows them to grow and it allows them to experience their own leadership and it allows them to see what they can do for themselves mm-hmm. and like, and it allows like for all of those those holes to get revealed and then filled, right? Right. And I think that that will happen um, over time with this organization as well. Um, and any healthy organization should have like a number of leaders, should have a number of people that are engaged and capable of doing a number of different things, you know? And so, um, and that also keeps us healthy, right? Because yes. I've learned that like uh, martyrdom is not service. No. Um, so that's not how I'm living. Like I, if I'm not pursuing my joy, I'm not doing it right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like for me, like joy is very important. Health is important and it's not, uh, and, and sacrificing all of those things for, you know, the greater good is actually not a service. Right. Right. Um, and I've made myself very, very sick many, many times. Oh, me too. And so I have learned <laughs> that lesson and I've seen it happen over and over, yeah. you know, and I think, um, and so many servants and so many leaders, um, live short short lives because of it and i've learned from them they're like no i'm 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 probably gonna be here for a minute yeah so i'm gonna pause and go play in some water (laughs) no i (laughs) get you i get some food drink some la croix yep um (laughs) you know and uh maybe go dance on the treadmill for Mm -hmm. a little bit and get myself together uh, it makes me a kinder person. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> I'm with you. I burned myself out. Yeah. My in my previous career, I was in politics and public mm-hmm. policy, and I I did the whole thing, like going to the doctor and they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. <laughs> and it was because I had just gotten to that place where the work took over everything, and there was n- there was no extension mm-hmm. beyond that. It was just the work, and that's all there was. And I was nobody without that. And I had nothing else. And now I'm different. Like now I'm like, no, I will not skip my workout for you. We can reschedule, 
(laughs) We can find a time that works for us both. Uh, But what I cannot do is skip the gym because you've decided that's the only time that works. Right. So, no. Yeah. Like, I'm also a person (laughs) in my life. Um, And, yeah, fun is a priority. Absolutely. Um, So that's that's something that needs to be. And I think it should be in everyone's priority, right? It's also, and that's also a part of leadership. Taking care of Mm -hmm. yourself is an important part of leadership. You got to demonstrate self-care for people. Um, Because I don't want any of the people that I've mentored to work themselves sick the way that I did in my 20s, you know, and 30s. Um, Those are things that I'm like, no, let's, let's, let's pause. Let's take a minute. Let's, uh, let's examine like why this system requires you to work yourself sick. Mm-hmm. And then let's examine the system, right? Because the system is broken. If right. anyone is having to do that, um, and if you're having to give more than you're receiving, then the system is broken. Right. And we have to pause and look at that rather than, uh, you know, this, this mythology around, you know, exceptionalism and requiring you know it's like pulling yourself up by bootstraps and all of these ridiculous and just hustle harder you know, yeah that, exactly. that whole the hustle rhetoric right. that's everywhere now yeah, which and is I'm like, like it's actually like nah sweetie if you buy into it you're being hustled right yeah that's all game <laughs> it's, it's all game. game like nah take care of you you need yeah. to be taken care of if you are not being made whole by a situation then that situation is unhealthy mm-hmm. um and it's robbing you so it's time to examine all those things, right? And there's so many, we get so many stories around um, how much we have to sacrifice. And uh, I don't think it's really accurate. Yeah, and I think that we out. don't think about sacrifice in the correct context. Right. We think sacrifice is pain. Like, right. I think sacrifice is really just a process of clearing the clutter out of your life. Right. Getting it out of your way so that you can make room for the thing that really matters. Like prioritization is real. That's necessary. (laughs) Hard work is necessary. Absolutely. Most definitely, right? But like hard work that gets swallowed into a vacuum, nah, Mm -hmm. that's not necessary. No. Not healthy, right? Or like one person carrying an entire load. Uh, you know, and alone mm-hmm. is also really unhealthy. Um, there are a lot of different models that are that we get sold, and I think especially women, uh, yeah, especially women, um, and and probably even more especially women of color um, get sold a whole lot of stories about mm-hmm. who we're supposed to be and we're supposed to be. You know, and everyone's got their uh, that those martyr stories of the women in their family, the women who raised them, who worked. Yeah two and three jobs and who never complained and who you know what I mean, had dinner on the table and like, et cetera, et cetera. And like all these things. And it's just like who we're supposed to be. Yeah. Um, if we're going to qualify as good mm-hmm. and, um, yeah, it's all game actually. Yeah. It's a hustle. Um, so that's the thing that's, uh, it's amazing how offended people get sometimes when I ask to be paid what my, what I'm worth. Oh yeah. Agreed. I've been there recently. I was like, no, I will not do that for that price (laughs) because why should I? (laughs) Well, you're just supposed to. Yeah. And those, and those are things too, especially when you, when you care a lot about the world. Um, and when you are someone who's an artist and an activist, those are things that happen pretty regularly. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, but I, I remind people that when they're, when they ask me to come do something that like, well, you're asking me for a gift. Um, you're asking me for a donation mm-hmm. and those are important things to talk about, right? Yeah. Because a donation of my time is, is a donation and I get to choose whether or not I give it. Right. You don't get to demand it or make me feel bad when I don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, if you, if you have a budget or if you don't, that's another, that's another, that's another unhealthy model that you're building. Right. right. 
Um, if it requires that everybody work for free and do a ton of labor, what are, what are we doing? Is that, is that yeah. the model? Which, by the way, is one of the things and one of the reasons why I'm no longer a nonprofit. Because yeah. there's just this this unspoken rule that it's like, we can't afford anything, so try to get everything and everybody to work for free. And I'm like, no. Yeah. <laughs> and it really doesn't have to be. And nonprofits yeah. don't even require that. There are definitely right. ways to run nonprofits that allow. I mean, it's a business. It is, right. <laughs> like nonprofits can generate revenue. Yeah, and they do. Totally a yes. lot of revenue. Mm -hmm. They're a huge part of the economy. In fact, mm -hmm. if nonprofits went away, our economy would collapse. Right. I mean, they do. So. Yeah, so there's, yeah, but there are just different mentalities. Mm -hmm. I think there are always those things that, um, that just, I just think people need to be made whole, right? And it's, it's more about, um, well, I suppose it's more about capitalism than anything else, you know, and how much mm -hmm. it seeps into everything that we do and the way that we approach things um, as Americans, um, the way that, you know, it's, it's part of the rhetoric and everything that we do. And like, again, being people who love hip hop, right? Like, right. Listen to so much hip hop, right? It's not really like no one really brags about, you know, uh, poverty until they come out of it right right you know and then they can maybe look back and reflect on when they used to be poor you know what I mean? right. <laughs> like, but uh it's not something that is you know there's so much poverty shaming in our culture um there's you know even among poor people yeah which is really interesting to me uh when you like kind of look at like the entire system of things and why people are poor and how um, and why people are rich and how, right? And all of, and how all of those things play in together. Um, it becomes much more interesting to listen to music. Yeah. Um, and, and hear the messages that you're getting all the time mm -hmm. um, around. Um, and again, that's, you know, why it's so important to be connected to your own inner voice, right? So whether that's writing poetry or prayer or meditation or running or whatever your thing is, whatever it is that you do uh, to connect with your own truth right it's like so important to know what that is mm -hmm. and let other people know what that is because they're so because we get sold messages in such clever packaging all yeah. day every day in some of our favorite songs and the things we love to bump right? yeah <laughs> I mean, there's still so much i mean like look at right now this whole um conversation around uh colin kaepernick and yeah. um nike right mm -hmm. you know and it's like you know loving all the things that he stands for and it's great that like somebody's giving him some money and that's right. beautiful. But it's still marketing. And it's also still Nike though. Yeah, it's, like, still... it's still like Nike child labor. It's still like, <laughs> it's, still, it's still like a huge, huge profit margin when right. the people that make the sneakers right. are horribly underpaid and often work in sweatshops. Like yep. it's still all of those things collectively, right? Like, so they're even selling wokeness, right? Mm -hmm. Cause they know that's hot in the streets. Yeah. So, um, it's you know it's 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 important to examine all of those things um and i don't know that you know and i don't judge anyone that's buying nike or wearing it um i just think it's important to be mindful like know what choices you're making and know know which which ways they're manipulating you and how and why right it's hard mm -hmm. it is i i we're all we're all subject to it we're I mean, all impacted by it it's know. it's for a second with the Nike Colin Kaepernick thing, I started to get into that argument. And then I was like, wait a second. Wait, everybody just hold on. We're still talking about 
a huge multinational company that has been accused of child labor and other grievous, grievous things. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden we're all up in arms and people are either burning their Nikes or running out and buying more. And I'm like, wait a second. They knew this was going to happen. Oh yeah. They did this. (laughs) They they know what they're doing. Everybody calm down. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. They're, they're successful for many reasons. Yes. Um, True. I know that you brought like a group of people you wanted to highlight quickly for this conversation um, doesn't have to be one person. Well, but. I think there are a lot. Um, mm-hmm. I think, um, especially here in Denver, I'll keep it local. Um, I think about Ovalonga Pugh, who was a storyteller who lived here for a very long time and, you know, definitely a cultural worker. Um, and she was hugely impactful in my childhood, right? She would mm-hmm. go to many of the elementary schools in the neighborhood and tell stories and um, she was so just powerful in her presence and so bold and so specific. I remember being a little girl and just I'd never seen anyone like her before and I just knew I wanted to be like her. I was like, wow, if she can exist as herself, mm-hmm. then I can exist as myself. And it gave me this sort of permission uh, to exist in a way that I hadn't before, right? Um, and so I think as a very young child, she had a huge impact um, and I also, you know, mentioned Ashara Kandaya several times and she's someone who changed the cultural landscape of the city. She lives in the Bay now um, and so they Oakland got her um, <laughs> and I'm happy for her and uh, really really grateful for all the work that she did here before she left mm-hmm. um, because yeah Slam Nula is still part of that legacy and that still happens last Friday of every month it is now run by Hakeem Furious and Toluani Ni Obiwole and they run it together I think it's happening at Redline now um, oh, that's so, a good spot. Yeah, it's yeah. been it's been in a few homes. We were at Crossroads Theater for a good decade until Crossroads closed its doors, and so uh, they moved to Brother Jeff's for a while, and uh, Redline's just got a little more space. Mm-hmm. So I think they are at Redline now, um, but definitely check out those places. Um, and then, yeah, the work of uh, Lady Speech Sankofa. And, oh yeah, uh, she's someone who I deeply love. Um, and there are so many people doing amazing work in the city and carving out spaces for other people. And that's one of the things I think about. I mean, I could name so many artists that have an impact on me, but mostly I'm thinking about people that hold space for others, right? People mm-hmm. who, um, you know, my, my dear friend, Mahogany Brown. So she lives in Brooklyn, um, but she was just on in an interview. Um, and that was one of the quotes that she said um, that I think is one of my favorite ways of existing and it's definitely how she moves in the world how i try to move in the world and how everyone i've referenced definitely moves in the world is uh you know when when i get it at the seat at the table i hold the door when i get to the table i make another table right mm. and just always making sure that you're bringing some other folks with you right and yeah you're holding that space not just for yourself to be dope and shiny because like everyone I know is dope and shiny. It's not even special. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I know know a a billion brilliant and creative geniuses and it's like not even that exciting. Uh, That's sort of the bar, but then how do you treat people? Right. Um, How do you affect the people around you? Um, And how are you, what legacy are you leaving for the world? And I think uh, the people that think about that, the people that really honor and work in community in meaningful and lasting ways are the people who I admire the most. Yeah. And holding space. Mm-hmm. That's really important. Most definitely. I hope I'm doing that for people. You are. I think you are. Yeah, thanks. Trying to, anyway. So, you know, I see you in here, you know. <laughs> Look, you get to the table, you make another table. Yeah. yeah. 
So, Susie, how can our listeners interact with you? Where can they find you on the internets? Um, all over the internet. I yes. am on twitter.com at Suzy Q Poet. Um, I am on Facebook as Suzy Q Smith. I'm on Instagram as Suzy Q Smith. I'm on, I think I still might have a Tumblr page. I'm pretty sure there's a MySpace still out there. I don't think I ever did Is MySpace it. still active? Every now Can and you again. still access it? I think so. Every now and again, oh, I get an email wow. saying that someone is like following me on MySpace. So I think that's still a thing that exists. I wouldn't recommend trying to reach me there. <laughs> um, but the easiest way probably is SusieQSmith.com. Great. And you, correct me if I'm wrong, but you have some work out on Spotify. Is that right? There might be. I have not released an album for six years. Uh, so I am almost there is, certain I saw you on Spotify. That's probably true. <laughs> uh, and it is, we'll just call it, uh, we're going to call it retro, we'll call it classic, because uh, I have not released any new it's vintage. music vintage for a minute. Vintage is good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's been a minute, so... All right, listen, so we will, um, I, I should say I will, because there ain't nobody doing show notes but me. So in the show notes, I will link to Suzy Q's page and some of these other people that we discussed here today so that you can find out more about them and increase your learning and and just be more informed, which is really important. So thank you so much, Susie, for joining us. I love, love, love having you here. Thank you for having me. My pleasure, 100%. And listeners, you know what to do. You know that this is the time that you need to go to iTunes and you need to leave us a five-star review and let us know what you think about this episode. As usual, make sure you head over to email. That's what she did, podcast at gmail.com, and keep sending me your thoughts on the show. So if you have somebody, a woman of impact that you think needs to be profiled on the show or somebody that needs to be a guest co-host on this show, then I need to hear from you. So send me that email. I love hearing from you. Speaking of Spotify, we are now officially on Spotify, and you can find us anywhere you are consuming your podcast. So... Thank you for listening to another episode of That's What She Did, and we'll catch up with you next time. We out.